Come gather, come gather, friends, close by the fire, and hear of a wondrous tale. Of goblins and elves and miscoated dells, and heroes who strive to prevail. Towards the highlands of Kel, our heroes now walked, some forty leagues north of Beleth, where the hills rose like teeth, where the rain fell in sheets, and the wind stole away Ali's breath. You're listening to Aliyads and the Aliyad Squad by Leona Cara. Chapter 1 The Prophecy. on the road. You know, there are few things as good for the mind as a long journey. There are parts that are simple and easy. The gentle stretches where you want the adventure to last for years. For the first few nights after leaving Harrodelf, Trenia and I took things easy. We had enough coin to prioritize comfort then, so we stopped at an inn every night and enjoyed a warm meal and a cozy bed. Trenia's shoulder was still raw from being skewered by Theron's arrow, and my broken arm and bruised ribs grew super sore after full days of walking. So we took it easy. We took it slow. Not slow, slow, just slower. Every day bringing us closer to the city of Cothram and Joe and Graham's secret hideout. Hopefully, if we found them in time, we'd also find my beloved Granbower. <laughs> then there are the parts of a journey that are challenging and somewhat uncomfortable, but add a sense of gravitas to the adventure. After our week of feather pillows and full bellies, our purses were feeling mighty light, and we vowed to camp more often to save some coin. Turns out that was an easy vow to keep, because once we passed beyond the village of Harting and into the highlands of Kel, there were barely any villages to speak of, let alone inns. We camped along the road for several nights, though it was hard to find flat ground that wasn't marshy. Summer was still weeks away, so the evenings were chilly, and a few nights it drizzled, but overall, it wasn't too bad. On the scale of adventurous misery, those nights were a five, tops. One night we were even able to bum a bed off a kindly old shepherd, eager for news from abroad. He shared food and drink, and gave us his best chairs by the fire. Oh, he was the very vision of hospitality. Until it was time to go to bed, and he let his sheep inside the croft to sleep. They get lonely in the dark, and there's talk of wolves in the hills and sheep going missing. You can't be too careful. It was a loud, smelly, and lanoliny night, but, you know, it wouldn't be a real adventure without a little challenge and discomfort. And then there are always the nagging, niggling pieces of a journey that seem cosmically designed to test your sanity. A thorn in your trousers that scratches at your leg and that you cannot find no matter how many times you take them off to search. A boot lace that unravels no matter how many double, triple, or quadruple knots you put in it. Midges flying into your eyes at a frequency that makes you wonder if a midge archery club is using your face for target practice. For me and Trenia on this particular sojourn, our grand annoyance was the wind. It was relentless. Morning, noon, and night it blew, and we're not talking a light breeze here. No, it was the full-blast, sting-your-cheeks-make-you-cry type of wind every hour of every day. Every day. Without end! After a few days of battling the bluster, I put forward that the sky was broken, because nothing else could explain it to me. To my surprise, 
Trinia glowered at the sky too and nodded in agreement. Even an elf used to talking ponds and glowing soil couldn't understand how the wind could be so windy. It was enough to drive a person mad. But as breathtaking as the wind was, the beauty of the highlands was even more so. Before I describe them, please remember that I grew up on a farm in the mostly flat, very boring plains of Quib. One could argue that the most notable feature of my childhood landscape was the community cesspool, where people chucked their daily... leavings. And the highest point of our town's topography was the wee hill upon which Bertram the Healer had his cottage. We in Fribbleshire called it the mountain, and it had a whopping elevation of five feet. So to me, the craggy hills of the highlands looked like the mountains out of storybooks. Enormous, jagged, towering hills that swept down into bull-shaped valleys, muscled by the erosion of countless rills and speckled with scree and boulders. For the most part, the mountains were covered head to toe by windswept grass, heather, gorse, and other shrubs, but every now and then I'd see a hill crested with a rounded gray stony peak, which rather gave the impression that the mountain had gone bald. At one point, our path led us up to the saddle between two such peaks, where we could see for miles. Sunbeams broke through the clouds and bounced off the glistening waters of a long, narrow lake nestled in the gentle green valley below. Eagles rode the wind and swept low across the waters, and a small herd of deer grazed on fresh green grass not forty yards down along the trail. Everything was still. Everything was perfect. The golden sky seemed to stretch on and on, out into a glowing, sparkling eternity. It's moments like that, moments when you can't help but marvel at the world and the fact that you're a part of it, that make every other piece of an adventure totally worth it. Well, almost every piece. Two weeks after departing from Harrowdelf, I reached the this is stupid, this sucks, I'm done phase of our journey. Trenia and I had been aiming to reach the village of Arlgrim by nightfall, but we accidentally took a wrong turn at a fork in the road, which, I might add, was incorrectly marked. It took us several hours to realize our mistake and backtrack, by which time I was tired and hungry and cranky, and the wind was being stupid and windy like it always was, and it started raining, and I sat down on a rock by the road and yelled and cried. Trenia was a real trooper about all that, she simply put a hand on my shoulder and said, I'll find us a place to set up camp. Alas, the only shelter Trinia could find was a jutted out rock, which was not large enough to shield us both from the downpour, but was better than nothing. It was too wet to get a fire started, so we ate cold, hard, stale bread and the last of our jerky as the world grew dark around us. Then we huddled together and braced ourselves for a long night of being battered by rain and the damnable wind. It wasn't long before both of us were shivering and miserable. Did, did you ever hear the story of Turling the Cold? No. What are they famous for? Well, after a long, illustrious career as a mercenary and adventurer, he, he, he died in the southern wilds because his coat was too thin. He, he froze to death. Yep. Turling the Cold. We aren't going to freeze to death. Well, we certainly aren't wearing the right coats. Trenia sighed and leaned her head back against the rock, trying to find a comfortable position, which we both knew was impossible. I, I heard Turlin the Cold was trying to get to an ogre village near Kurtzpliss Lake, but he misjudged the distance one day and st stopped short, just like us. Mm-hmm. And I heard he tried to 
just camp along the road and wait till morning, since he was too tired to walk any further, just, just like us. Mm-hmm. And then he died. In Telerima Alley. Are you really that worried? Are you really not? The sky's practically a waterfall. The, the road's turned into a river and we, we can't go anywhere. And we've, we've been shivering beneath the joke of a rock for hours. And morning's who knows how many hours away. Mm, this blasted wind! Fine. If you're truly that worried, take off your clothes. What? Take off your clothes. W- why? Skin-to-skin contact. Survival basics. If Turlin had tried it, maybe he wouldn't have died. Ternia shifted beneath her soggy bedroll, slurped out of her coat, and attempted to unfasten the toggles of her tunic one-handed, muttering to herself, What kind of idiot would travel alone in the southern wilds? Ithilio Vethas, Zindaviath. Can you help me? I can't do it with one arm. Uh, sure. Hesitantly, I reached for Trenia's tunic and unfastened the toggles. When I loosed the toggle below her throat, a pale white light shone out from her chest. The Ozpalon. A magical luminous marking of a hand swirling with ivy and flowers. The curse her brother Theron placed upon her with his dying breath. Both of us froze, remembering. I drove the memories away and continued to unfasten Trenia's shirt. When it came time to pull it off, I looked away. Trenia laughed. What is it with humans and bodies? It's like you're ashamed they exist. I'm just trying to be respectful. It's not like it's the first time you've seen breasts. Doesn't mean I have to stare. Are you afraid it would mean something about you if you did? No. No. Well, maybe, maybe. I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's not what I was taught, okay? Hmm. I suppose to some degree, all we are is what we're taught. I don't know. Sure, maybe. I don't know. I then began the challenging task of removing my own clothes without disturbing the caster on my broken arm, and Trenia tugged and pulled as needed. I covered my breasts when my shirt came off and braced myself for Trenia's ridicule. But there was none. She simply pulled me to her chest. Gosh, she was warm. Way warmer than I was. Maybe it was an elven thing? Lucky elven duck. We arranged our clothes and bedrolls over us to maximize dryness and warmth, then laid down. I was shivering wildly, so Trenia tucked my head beneath her chin and squeezed me tight. Before long, my breath grew steady and my body grew warm, and I felt like a chick in her mother's nest. I wouldn't say I was relaxed, though. Even with clothes on, I'd never had such a prolonged, intimate moment with another person. Heck, the only people I'd ever really cuddled with were Mom, Grandbauer, and Mrs. Morris DeFuzz, our childhood cat. And two of those weren't even people. It was weird to have someone's arms wrapped around me. To hear Trenia's breath in my ear, to feel her heartbeat against my cheek. I had never been so close to another person's heart before. And I realized no one had ever been so close to mine. Are you warming up yet? Yeah. Hey, Trenia? Yes? I think... I think... What? I think you're the best friend I've ever had. (laughs) You too, Ali. She squeezed me in a friendly hug, and I hugged her back. The howls of the wind and the torrent of rain faded from my mind, and I drifted off to sleep. I woke only once, when I heard a noise like falling rocks nearby. I craned my neck to see over Trenia's shoulder, and saw two pale glowing orbs flit towards me for a brief flash, before disappearing back into the dark. 
I listened for a few more minutes, and eventually heard rocks sliding further along down the hill. Whatever it was, a wolf or a lynx, it didn't care a bit about us, and I fell back asleep. In the morning, I rubbed my eyes and stretched my sore body and saw that our surroundings had been transformed from a dark, rainy gloom fest into something rather lovely. The craggy green hills shimmered wet in the brisk morning light, and waterfalls poured down countless cliffs where rills had overflown their trickle banks. Warblers warbled as they flitted between gorse bushes, and a solitary stag drank from a nearby creek. Steam rose from our clothes and bedrolls. The wind was still swirling, but everywhere, warmth and dryness returned. In fact, the only things that didn't fit into the uplifting tableau were the boogers dangling from my nose. Turns out, Trinia and I were both feeling sick. And no wonder! Curse you, wind! We packed up our soggy camp, ate a few scraps of dried fruit, and trundled onwards up the road with a clear agreement that we would stop at the first inn we found, no matter the price. Thankfully, Fortune found us on the road. Fortune Favors was her full name, and she was a beekeeper from Harding, the last town we'd passed several days back. Fortune was driving a two-horse wagon up to Allsforth, loaded with honeycomb, candles, and beeswax to trade along the way. She let us ride in the back of her wagon, and offered condolences for our night of misery on the road. Ah, you poor things. I tell you, things are different than they used to be around here. Used to be a warm fire and a dry bed to be had all along this road, but now it's damn near impossible to find anyone wanting to live out here. Why's that? Oh, where to start? For one, we never used to have rain like what we had last night. No, ma'am. There's whole chunks of road wiped out now. Used to be a steady, gentle soak from fall till spring, and into summer even. That's what I remember as a girl. Months and months of drizzle, a few weeks of dry. Now it's these wild, random storms that throw everything into the muck. It's changed that fast. You don't seem very old to me. Oh, bless you, love, but I'm sure I could be your mother. Aye, the changes have crept up in the last decade or two. Without the steady rains through spring and summer, the ground goes yellow and the creeks go dry by the brightening. Not to mention it gets hotter than a horse's mouth. Even the wind, which has always been a wretched growling thing, is so bad now that all the bees within Kill proper have either died off or swarmed off. Oh, that's awful. Aye, it is. Very awful. Though, I will admit, it has been pretty great for me. I've never had a higher demand for honeycomb and beeswax. Ah, some folks get by with them greasy tallow candles and rushlights, but nothing burns like wax. And nothing tastes like honey. If it weren't for all these goblin attacks lately, I'd send a whole fleet of wagons to cover every corner of Kell. Goblins? Aye, goblins. Pesky little boogers. It's part of why I picked you up, if we're being honest. It's safest to travel in groups. I thought of the pale eyes I'd seen during the night. Could they have belonged to a goblin? Had we been mere feet away from peril? I turned to Trenia. Geez, I, I thought goblins were kind of like ogres and vampires, you know? Like, just things out of stories. I remember Ikanavin telling me about them once. She ran into a pack when she was selling herbs outside Belef. She said they were pale, ghastly little creatures with great wide eyes. That they are. I've only seen them once myself. A few years back when they nubbed a cow from my neighbor's pen and caused a whole bloody uproar. I went over to see what's the matter. And a big white bugger looked right in me eyes and growled like a beast. Woo! Sends shivers through me just to think of it. Oh my gosh, so they're just out there? Roaming the hills? Well, sort of. They live underground, beneath the hills. 
but their tunnels can surface anywhere and are often visible to the untrained eye. Never know when and where they're going to pop out and snatch you. I looked out at the passing landscape, suddenly afraid that every tussock of grass was hiding a trap door of doom. That's why I always travel with this. Fortune bent down to reach something beneath her feet and whipped out a loaded crossbow. Hop and Hawthorne! Fortune set the crossbow on her lap. Fortune favors the well-prepared. Near sundown, Fortune stopped her wagon at the Cloudberry Inn, the main destination for travelers in the town of Algram. She stayed there for a night and then carried on up the road to Cothram. But Trenia and I stayed at the inn for two nights, sick and feverish and more than willing to hand over the majority of our silver in exchange for warmth, bedding, and food. At one point, I was so loopy with fever that I cuddled Trenia to my chest, patted her face, and said, Wow, Grandbauer, you shaved! And Trenia wasn't doing much better. She kept punching the air with her good arm, as if fighting an invisible foe. At one point, I asked her what she was fighting, and she yelled, Feelings! Eventually, the groggy fog lifted from both our brows, and we were able to get back on the road. There was more traffic now that we were in Kel proper and Trenia and I were able to tag along with two men lugging iron to the main city of Alsfrith, the road to which conveniently passed through Cothram. We journeyed the whole day, stopping every so often for water and snacks, and always keeping a wary eye on the hills, in case we looked like the sort of hapless travelers that goblins liked to attack. But we reached the farmlands of Cothram without incident, and passed many a field and mill before reaching Cothram itself before sundown. High slate walls encased the whole city, and from what I could see, guards were posted on inner platforms every fifty yards across the whole span. Purple flags emblazoned with three golden stars flapped wildly above their heads. Just before the gates of Cothram, the main road split in two. One branch curved west around the city, and the other led straight to the city gates. Trinia and I hopped out of the cart at that point, and thanked our iron-lugging friends for their company before parting ways. Two guards stood before the closed gates of Cothram, and they tensed when Trinia and I drew near eyeing the sword that hung from Trenia's hip. Hi there, how are you doing? I said. That's a mighty fine blade you have there, Elf. Indeed it is. Why are you traveling so well armed? Well, I wouldn't exactly say we're well armed. I held out my broken arm in its cast and nodded to Trenia's arm in a sling. The guards chuckled, so I continued. I'm Aliods of Fribbleshire, and this is my friend, Trenia of... of... I was about to say Trenia of Belef, but then I remembered that Trenia had been cursed by her brother Theron and in his final breaths made Azpalan, Deadheart, banished from Belef and the Nervanga in body and spirit. That seemed like a lot to explain, so I said, Trenia of... of... Ovington. Ovington? Where's that? I think it's over there by Burham, ain't it? But more on the Pladen side. Sounds made up to me. No, I'm pretty sure I have a cousin who moved down to Ovington. Do you now? Oh, wow, what a dink, huh, Trenia? A dink indeed. The gullible guard peered up at Trenia. Do you know uh, Mavis Morley down there? I feel like I remember you mentioning a Mavis somebody at some point, no? Trenia furrowed her brows at me, but took the bait. A friend of a friend, surely. Well, how about that? Stay focused, Igra. What business have you in Cothram, so far from your homes? Well, about two turns ago, I left my home in Fribbleshire with my dear friend Granbauer. Granbauer is a goat, but he's a really special one, and I'd never left home before, so... Short version, Ali. Short version. 
Right. Uh, well, uh, Joe and Graham stole my goat, and now we're hunting them down. <laughs> the guards were silent for a moment. Shocked, I thought, by our heroic intent to hunt down the infamous Jolly Robbers. But the guards just stood there blinking, until one of them said, Okay. Joe and Graham? <laughs> Joe and Graham? No, you've never heard of them? They're wanted criminals in every village and town south of here. They have a hideout nearby. Surely you must have seen them. Not ringing a bell. You, Teague? Nope. Well, what do they look like? Well, well, they're older. Around 60, I'd say, if not more. They're heavy set, uh, big rosy cheeks. Uh, oh, Joe has long silver hair that she wears pulled back, and Graham has a bear crown except the sides. Joe's probably about as tall as me? Graham not quite as tall as Trenia? Hmm. That sounds an awful lot like Fanny and Tom, don't it, Teague? Aye, it does. Fanny and Tom? Who are they? Only the worst bandits to ever curse the Highlands! The guards spit on the ground for emphasis. The jolly robbers, they call themselves. The pair of rascals. Stole the pearls off my own wife's neck, they did! Cheeky blighters. Stole my favorite shoes! Set old Winston's barn on fire! Of course, all this was years ago, before Master Pogren had these walls put up. No way in for the likes of Fanny and Tom now unless they walk through these very gates. Which you would never let happen. No, ma'am, we wouldn't. Well, not unless they used fake names like Joe and Graham and looked like kindly old people traveling with a goat. No, ma'am, I am absolutely certain that no such... The guard turned to their companion with grave concern. The other guard looked back, confused, until realization spread across his face. He quickly shook his head. Nah, it, it wasn't them. Y- you sure? Sure. Uh, why, there are plenty of old folks wandering the valleys with their goats. Are there? That would explain why Maggie Carthright's earrings were stolen the other day, and Ollie's embroidered vest? Oh, by the stars. So Joe and Graham were here? Oh no! We're gonna be sacked! When did they come through? If they were here, and I'm not saying they were... Oh no! What will I tell my wife? It would have been a few days ago. But there's been no sign or trace of Joe or Tom or Fanny and Graham or uh, those bloody brigands since then. Hooray! Ah, I practically jumped with joy. Granbauer had walked through these very same gates. We hadn't fallen as far behind as I feared. If we left for Joe and Graham's hideout as soon as possible, there was a really good chance we'd actually find him there. Ah, hooray and huzzah! I gathered myself and assured the guards. Well... If they did come through, wink wink, then don't you worry. Trenia and I are going to find them and bring them to justice. Maybe we'll even get to bring them back here and we can all celebrate the end of their terrible reign together. Aye, well that'd be proper fun. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Now will you open the gates? Trenia gestured to the still-closed gates, her patience for the guards clearly at its end. Oh, of course. Radio, here you are. The gates were opened, and finally, we passed behind the walls of Cawthorne. Cawthorne was a townish-sized city, or perhaps a city-sized town. It was certainly the biggest town I'd seen since Derry, which was inarguably a city. At any rate, most of the buildings were made of dark gray slate that stood up well against the lashing wind, much like the walls surrounding them. And the layout was very orderly, with a distinct grid of square-shaped plots hemmed by straight cobbled roads. 
I didn't see a curve or a twist anywhere. Just tidy, neat buildings and streets. Glass-paned lanterns thrust out above every front door we passed, and their flickering lights lent a cheery warmth to the brooding slate as the sun set over the western hills. Trenia and I wandered along the main road in search of an inn, and marveled at the people passing by. Almost everyone was human, and almost everyone was draped in finely spun cloth or supple leather. Their hair was groomed and tidy despite the ever-present wind, their faces were clean, and their boots and shoes were notably free of mud and feces, none of which I could say about any other group of humans I'd met. Even the aroma of pee and filth that normally ensconced the city was remarkably absent. Whatever these people were doing, they were doing it right. Stars were poking out of the darkened sky by the time we found our way to the town square, but lanterns illuminated everything so thoroughly that I almost forgot it was night. Vendors sold food from lantern-lit carts to a throng of gathered people, and a low stone wall ringing the courtyard served as a bench for the crowd. I'd never seen so many people out on a normal evening. Back in Fribbleshire, everyone pretty much turned in and locked the doors by sunset, unless there was a festival, and if I hadn't completely lost my sense of time on the road, brightening celebrations weren't for another week. So what were all these people doing out so late? Enjoying themselves? Together? Outdoors? At night? It was at that moment that I decided Cawthorn was the best place ever. Trenia and I spent some of our few remaining coppers on a sumptuous venison pasty, and sat down on the stone wall to share it and enjoy the cheery hubbub. There was an elderly person singing and playing lute. There was a duo of colorfully dressed actors pantomiming for a gaggle of giggling children. There was an old man tossing handfuls of breadcrumbs to a handful of crows. There were adults hemming and hawing while they played a board game and there were young couples with flushed cheeks inching closer and closer together. But what truly captivated me was a juggler. He was a tall, pale, wiry lad with a shock of messy orange hair and a thin, pointy nose. He wore strange yellow robes over a laced-up yellow kirtle. He was a few years older than me from the look of it. Not notably handsome, but not notably plain. He tossed three round stones back and forth in the air in evenly timed arcs, and I grew entranced by the meditative rhythm of his hands rising and falling. This rhythm was clearly quite easy for him, so he changed things up. He tossed the stones high up in the air, several feet above his head, and caught them behind his back. And then he did all sorts of crafty, loopy, twirly, whirly hand motions that got so fancy I honestly couldn't understand what was happening. But whatever it was, I liked it. After a few minutes of tricks, the young man caught all the stones in one hand, and took a bow to a roar of applause. Then, somehow, another stone magically appeared in the air above his head, out of nowhere. It dropped, as any stone would, and the lad deftly caught it and began juggling with all four stones. Two more stones appeared in this way, until the juggler was lobbing six stones high into the air in a dazzling display of focus and dexterity. By this point, I was already out of my seat and standing on the little stone wall to see over the crowd, unwilling to miss a moment of the act. Trenia stood next to me, equally impressed and delighted, so we had a great view of the juggler's grand finale. He threw all six stones into the air as if juggling normally, but against all natural laws, the stones did not come down. No, they remained in the air, hovering. At first, the juggler pretended to be as surprised as the audience. His hands rose up and down, throwing and catching empty air as he stared up at the levitating stones. The audience laughed. Heck, even Trenia laughed. And then we all gasped as the levitating stones began to rise and fall in the same rhythm as the young man's hands down below. 
as if he was truly juggling them. Trenia blurted, Lua, intelom lam, and slapped my shoulder with such disbelief that I almost fell off the wall. I regained my balance in time to see the juggler clap his hands above his head, and I watched, dumbstruck, as the six stones converged in midair and exploded in a blast of sparkling purple light. What? How? Whoa! The crowd screamed and applauded as the young man took his final bow. Breathless, Trinia and I looked at each other as if to confirm that what we'd seen had actually happened. Was that... was it really? I think it was. Magic! The applause continued, and the crowd began to chant, More! 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 The young man smiled and raised his hands to the sky, ready to oblige. But no sooner had small balls of orange flame erupted from the tips of his fingers than they disappeared. The juggler lowered his arms and stared at three men who had found their way to the front of the crowd. Two of the men looked about the same age as the juggler and shared the same freckled faces and shock of bright orange hair. It was immediately clear that they were all brothers. One was much taller than the others and bore a short red beard and wore his long hair partially pulled back. He had the large muscled shoulders of a man whose body was his main tool in life. The other brother was much slighter than the first, and even thinner than the gangly juggler. He was clean-shaven and wore his hair trimmed short. When he smiled, his lips appeared to twitch and tremble, as if the gesture took some effort, and when he waved, his arm moved in a stiff, jolting motion. It was clear he wanted to rush forward and embrace the juggler, but he was held back by the third man, who I took to be the trio's father. The father was some fifty winters old, with a stern jaw, a heavy brow, and a pale white face. Unlike his fiery-haired sons, the father's hair was black as pitch, but all four of them shared the same bright green eyes. The father's attention was fixed on the juggler, an expression of contempt and disappointment clear on his face. The juggler lowered his head and said something I couldn't hear, and the crowd began to disperse, uttering disappointed aww's as it broke apart. I stood on my tippy toes and watched the three brothers follow their father out of the square, embracing and shaking hands behind his back. Trenia was watching them too. Should we follow? Why would we do that? The traps that burned your arm in Joe and Graham's lair were magical, were they not? I stared after the juggler, and watched as he lit a burned-out lantern above a shop with a snap of his fingers. You're darn right they were. The streets were well lit, so it wasn't hard to keep track of the three brothers' orange heads bobbing up and down ahead of us as we walked. We moved at a brisk pace, and were near to catching them when their father turned off the street and into a small courtyard connected to the biggest building in town. It was four stories high at least, just as square and orderly as all the other buildings in town, but distinguished by elaborate carvings in the masonry and by stained glass windows that glowed brightly from within. The path to the courtyard was flanked by two statues, both human in form, one feminine and one masculine, and both statues extended cupped hands from which flowed fountains of clear, cool water. The father and all three brothers each dipped a finger in the water and brought the drips to their brows before walking up a stone ramp towards a wooden double door. Purple banners with gold stars like the flags that flew above Cothram's walls hung astride the doors, and two guards bowed as the juggler and his family approached. They exchanged a few words, then the doors were opened, and the four men went inside. Trenia and I hustled up the ramp, but the guards drew the doors closed and resumed their places before them. Sorry, friends, the hall's closed. If you've business for the triumvirate, you'll have to come back tomorrow. Triumvirate? No, 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 no. We, we just want to talk to the wizard guy, the one who just went in. Wizard? The one who does the tricks with rocks? I made juggling motions with my hands. Makes them all floaty and shoots fire out of his fingertips? 
Oh, you must mean Master Ross. As I said, the hall is closed. If you have business with the Triumvirate or their family members, you'll have to come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? Ah. I turned to Trinia, hoping she might say something that would get us in the door, but she shrugged and held back a yawn. If we know we can find him here tomorrow, it wouldn't hurt to get some rest first. Uh, you're probably right. I turned back to the guards. His name is Russ, you say? You must not be from around here if you don't be knowing the Docalic boys. No, we're not. The guard nodded to Trenia's pointy brown ears. Aye, I can see that, elf. Trenia's hand dropped instinctively to the grip of her sword. And what's that supposed to mean? I put my hand on hers and pulled her away from the guard, who seemed confused that her comment had been taken as an insult. It means it's time to find an inn and go to sleep! Yay! That's what it means! Come on, Trinia. Trinia shook me off, but she let go of her grip and headed back towards the street, muttering insults under breath. Sindertrengeth, kituk bilio portulilio. I turned to the guards. Elves are more than their ears, guys. Take care. The closest inn to the Fancy Pants Hall was the Bleary Badger. It looked clean, smelled amazing, and had several open rooms. Unfortunately, we couldn't afford one. All Trini and I had left in our shared purse were four copper pieces, two silver pieces, and a few iron stibs, which equaled not enough. Luckily, I was able to convince the owner to let me read stories from the tales of Galena the Great in exchange for a room, on the condition that I accepted no tips for my efforts. That worked for us. Trenia and I weren't planning to spend another night at an inn before heading off to catch Joe and Graham, and once we did, we were sure to receive a hefty reward wherever we turned them in. Heck, for all we knew, that night at the Bleary Badger would be one of the last we'd ever have to worry about money. After supper, Trinia headed upstairs to our room and went to bed, while I took a seat by the fire and read aloud tales from Galena the Great. I read Galena and the Spotted Boar, Galena and the Sorcerer, Galena and the Lady of Mist, and a few more of my favorites to the folks gathered in the common room before bedtime. My readings were well received, and people were delightfully disappointed when I closed my book and thanked them all for listening. I went upstairs to our room and found Trinia splayed out across the bed and snoring. The glowing marks upon her chest gave me just enough light to undress and shove her limbs to one side of the bed, before I, too, fell merrily asleep. In the morning, Trinia and I broke our fast on honey and toast. The honey no doubt provided by fortune favors and her bees down south. Trinia had only ever had the blue honey of the Durbindala in Beleth, which had a darker, earthier flavor than the tangy, bright honey like this that I was used to. Trinia loved it, and we laughed as we ate spoonful after spoonful of the sweet golden gloop. Unsurprisingly, no one else in the inn seemed eager to share our silly, sticky table. No one but a stout old person with dark, wrinkly skin, who sat down beside me and smiled a beaming gap-tooth smile. They looked vaguely familiar, but I had no idea why. Good morning, they said. Trinia and I, our mouths still full of honey, responded, Good morning. I listened to you read your stories last night. My, it's been a while since I've heard anything of good old Galena. What a treat. You read her well. Thank you, I said, wiping the honey from my chin and examining the stranger. Though they were visibly human, the person carried themselves in the genderless fashion of the elves. They wore deep purple robes, atop a jacket, atop a vest, atop a shirt, all hemmed by dirt and thin from wear. Their dark brown wrinkled face was framed by a halo of kinky white hair upon which sat a multicolored hat. They bore no obvious jewelry, unless you counted the leather strap around their wrist, from which dangled a wooden cane. They held out a hand. Name's Melka. I took their hand and shook it. Allie. Allie odds. 
I gestured to Trenia. This is my friend Trenia. Melka's smile beamed even brighter when they saw Trenia. Ah! Ilaglithalanus Solhuti? Trenia perked up at the sound of Elvish on a human tongue. O ileal norvenka. Noth ilas palan. Melka brought their hands together before their chest and shook them in a sorrowful gesture. Oh, ila toka, Trenia. Hoth ila galbundio tokala por ileal eslith tu uthen nursok. I had absolutely no idea what Melka said, but whatever it was, it brought tears to Trenia's eyes. What, Melka? Drumeal? And where did you learn to speak Norvengen? I don't speak it, really. I'm far better with Sunhili. But a lot of the elven languages have the same roots, though they grow into different trees. I'm a lorist by training, and I was taught that it shows the greatest respect to a story if you know the tongue in which it's told. You're a lorist? Yep, I'm a trained story sniffer. Been sniffing out stories since I was young. Helped me sniff you out last night. Ain't no way Galena the Great's being told around these parts without me catching wind of it. She's from Inden, my neck of the woods. Wow. Oh, I suddenly felt very insecure. I had no idea I'd been telling stories in front of a professional. How old are you, child? Seventeen. Though I'll be eighteen in a few turns. Hmm. Not too old. You ever think of training up as a lorist? I blushed. Who, me? No, the broomstick in the corner. Of course you. Well, no, I mean, I, I don't even really know what that means. It means studying your buns off for six years or more at the icebox and then never having to ask for food or lodging for a single night of your life. The icebox? The Arcanium College. Down in the Great Forest. The icebox is a moniker among students. Whoa. The Arcanium College. Well, now there was a place out of storybooks. I'd never thought, never even considered for a second that someone like me could belong in a place like that. The college was a place for wizards and alchemists and court advisors. A place for the sharpest minds of lore to grow even sharper. Not for cow-mucking farm peasants like me. Heck, it was a miracle I could even read. I swirled in the glow of Melka's suggestion, relishing the excitement and hope that comes from imagining a new adventure without actually having to go on it. Of course you'd have to learn to tell stories without reading from a book, but I reckon someone with your panache could do quite well there. I've sponsored other students, and all have graduated with yellow robes or higher, which, you know, ain't too bad. Wow. Thank thank you, Melka. Maybe someday, but Trenia and I are kind of on a mission right now. Ah. Melka eyed us curiously. You're more interested in being the story than telling the story. Melka closed their eyes and sniffed the air. (laughs) And it's a big one. Melka kept sniffing, the wings of their brown nostrils flaring like butterfly wings with each snuff. Trenia shot me a look of discomfort. I thought Melka had been joking about sniffing out stories before. Is that something they actually taught at the Arcanium College? (laughs) Ooh! Yes, very interesting. Very interesting indeed. A quest? Two heroes who've left their homes? Come here to Cawthorn for? 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 Melka stopped sniffing and opened their eyes. Why are you here? Well, I left my home in Fribbleshire a few turns ago with my goat Grambauer. Zoop! Skip the first volume. I can infer. Okay, um... 
Well, I met Trenia in Derry when she- Nope! Still too far back. Okay, well, Joe and Graham had a hideout south of Herodolf, but when I went inside- Ah, dear, if you want to be a storyteller, you've got to be better at knowing where stories start. Okay, fine. We're trying to capture Joe and Graham. We found a mage last night who we think could help us rest somebody, and we're hoping to meet with him today and ask for his help. You're talking about Russ Dorcalic? Dorcalic! Yes, that's right. Oi! Melka slapped the table and rubbed their hands together. What? 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 Why, why is that exciting? <laughs> I knew I smelled something good a brewing. You and Trania and Joe and Graham and the Dorcalic boys? <laughs> Ah, it's perfect, and you don't even know it! No, no what? Gosh, now I don't even know where to start. Trenia and I waited with bated breath as Melka gathered their thoughts. They rubbed their chin and closed their eyes and scratched their head. And after a while, they nodded. Yes. Yes, a song! One moment. Melka rose and left the room for a moment, and returned with a beautifully carved lute. At once, I realized why they were familiar to me. They had been the person singing and playing music in the town square the night before. Ah! Melka returned to their seat at our table and strummed a chord on the lute. Ooh, they winced at the sound and tightened the knobs atop the neck, plucking individual strings until satisfied that the instrument was tuned. Now, listen carefully. This is where our story begins. All will become clear by the end. Melka plucked a somber tune and raised their voice in song. How can I sing to thee of the brothers three who delivered fair Cal from There once did stand a mighty oak upon Turgallon's peak, near Allsforth town where rushed down the silver flow replete. Storms were rare, the days were fair, the people strong and bold. When fire rose in curling throws to char the oaken leaves, the earth trembled as if a rug beaten upon the line, and from its gaping cracks crawled to be screwly aligned. One flaming dread its made stone at they marched to Lake Lanel, and summoned yet another beast whose body wet did shine. Then from the very sky did fall another monster born. Of tempest breath invisible, the wind in evil form. It swept the land, nothing could stand, the cattle blew away. It clove the very valley troughs as through the land it tore. Descended they, these horrid brutes, upon the land of Kel. Enchanting river, grassland, sky beneath their awful spell. They flooded plains and burned ripe grains, shook mountains from the earth. 
The people valiant did stand, but one by one they fell. Poor Kel story heard the brothers three. Through wind and sands they came to set us free. The eldest born was Avamont, he strong as hard and steel. Was followed hence by wise Lacken, whose cunning all revealed. And lastly came Thranil the tame, whose voice could stop the moon. All reared in the Arcanium and learned Kurzgoil. So skilled were they at arcane arts, the brothers knew no fear. Approach it they with spells in hand and called the monsters near. They cast rare charms that caused such harm. The monsters toppled thence. All but the wind who slipped away into this day blows fierce. Then plucked the three from body still, the heart of each fell beast. Then bound them fast to mighty thrones, crowning Turgallant's peak. From there they ruled their powers, pooled beneath the ancient oak. Reborn with Skell, its strength renewed, our land once more complete. On lives the prophecy that the brothers three shall return to us again in time of need. When Melka finished, those who were listening in the inn applauded and raised their glasses and thanks. Melka waved their gratitude to them and then turned expectantly to me and Trenia. So? It's lovely. I mean, beautiful, but... But but what does it have to do with the Dokalic boys? Yeah, that. What I just sang was called The Brothers Three. It's an old, old ballad considered one of the foundational historical ballads of Quib. As you heard, it speaks of the Akazov brothers who tamed these lands and founded Kel a thousand years ago. They are not legendary figures, they were real people, and they did in fact raise the three seats of Turgallon that rest beneath the mighty oak, Alaron. Their graves are marked, most people in Kel are descended from them, so there's no debate about that. What has been debated is the bit about the prophecy, that the brothers three shall return to us again in times of need. Now, I've traveled around in my day, and I'll tell you that there are plenty of towns out there full of superstitious people harping about prophecies and predictions. Naturally, most of them are full of crook. But Cothrum is not a superstitious place. Kel, in general, is very straightforward, very logic-oriented, not the kind of place to put a lot of stock in fanciful tales. But the floods, the fires, the quakes mentioned in the ballad, they're all coming back. The crops are failing, the wind is worse than ever, even all around the Great is dropping leaves out of season. Add on the goblin attacks these past few years, 
and you're looking at a Kel that's about as bad as the one the Akazov brothers found a thousand years ago. So the people of Kel think the Drakalic brothers are like the reincarnation of the Akazov brothers? Exactly. You've got Pogrin, tall and strong like Abamon the Brazen, Russ, clever and intelligent like Flakon the Cunning, and Delorin, so kind he could soothe Threnil the Tame himself. It's uncanny how they fit the parts. Plus, they've all got that orange hair. Since when is hair prophetic? When you take into account that both the Dorcalic parents have hair black as pitch, as did their parents before them, and how the Akazov brothers are often referred to as the Sons of Fire due to the color of their hair. Oh, well, uh, that's certainly something. I told you. I was trying to sniff out stories, and my nose led me here. So you're here to see if the prophecy comes true? And help it along if I can. And you think we're part of it? Melka sniffed us again. <laughs> I know it. Cool. Uh, uh, how? I'm not sure, but I know a story begins today. Huh, well how about that? It's not every day you get news that you're part of a prophecy, so... So, you'll take us to meet Russ and his brothers? As soon as you two are done slurping down honey, I'll introduce you myself. Oh my gosh, Trinia. Bah! Huh. Wow, well, th- thank you so much, Melka. Ah, uh, it's no trouble at all. It will all be well worth it when I write down the story and see my name beside those of the great lorists. Phineas Flightfoot, Greekon Woodpur, Kilthia Huleron, Melka Rick. Melka's gaze drifted into dreams for a moment, then sharpened onto me and Trinia. All right. So are you two ready or what? Wowie wow wow, it is good to be back. Two years, my friends. It's been two whole years since the last time I released episodes. Thank you so much for your patience and hopefully your understanding with all that has come up in the last few years and the ways that, that has impacted my ability to bring you more episodes. And don't fear, it shouldn't be so long until the next episodes come out. And I've kind of built in some insurance for myself about that, which comes in the form of new cast members. I'm being joined by Sawyer Elms, Asia McDermott, Harper Stone, Lydia Randall, and Richard Wilson for the second season. And having all these amazingly talented and skilled, wonderful people on board is helping me stay on task. Because it's just so fun to record with them. And it's just so fun to share this all with you, my listeners. This story means so much to me, and it only matters in so much as there are people out there who care for it. So thank you so much for caring, for listening, for holding this story in your heart. If you were one of the many people who wondered if this little show was never coming back, I really advise you to check out my Patreon page. You can join for as little as a dollar a month, and that's the first place that I post updates about what's happening in the land of lore, related to Aliads and other stories that I've released that are set in the same world. And thanks again to all of my amazingly generous, patient, patient patrons. (laughs) who have been supporting me through these last few years, even when there wasn't something obvious to show for it. Your support has literally kept me afloat. Thank you so much. And I'd like to give a special shout-out to my Rainbow Unicorn-level donors on Patreon. Gladys Selsar and Dr. Sunshine, thank you so much for your unflagging generosity. You are rare and mythical beasts indeed. Thanks again for listening, and I'll hope to see you around the fire for Chapter 2, The Brothers 3.